welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Very happy to be back at Sports Pro Towers with senior writer Sam Carp. Hello Sam. Hi Owen, how are you, how are you doing? I'm good Sam, I'm good and Sports Pro senior reporter Steve Impey. Hi Steve. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Now Steve, you've been off in Japan for a couple of weeks or so, uh, following a bit of the Rugby World Cup around, uh, which we will get onto a little bit later on. Uh, looking forward to hearing about that. We're also going to be finding out all about IBB Polonia, a small club with big ideas, uh, preparing to become the first English team to play in the Volleyball Champions League. It's a really interesting little story, that. Um, first up, Sam, what have you been doing while Fortnite's been down? What have been doing while Fortnite's been down? I was getting my life back on. <laughs> no, I am actually not an adopter of Fortnite, so I've just been going about my daily life writing news stories about Kipchoge, the NBA in China, which, um, funnily enough, are what we're going to be talking about today, is it not? Yeah, well, you've you've set the agenda now, so um, yeah, that. that's, what, that's where we'll start things. I mean... Um, a lot of people, Sam, apparently watching Elliot Kipchoge's five hundred million, apparently. Well, pinch of salt. That's what Steve wrote, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> pinch of salt on on the the kind of cumulative numbers, but certainly some impressive numbers on um, coming out of you know YouTube views and, and everything else, and and and, and a sign that this is something that did capture people's imagination in the moment, certainly, and there was you know a lot of um, supporting coverage from. You know, BBC, just to take a, a parochial example, BBC News throwing to the, the closing stages in, in, on, on Saturday morning. Um, what, what was your impression of the event as a whole, Sam? What was your impression of the concept and uh, what was your, your wider take on it? Um, well, compared to the previous attempt, I thought the event was much better put together. Um, and also, I think from a broadcast perspective as well, to the sunset and vinyl. So this is board. breaking two that you're talking about, which of course was much yes. more sealed. The yeah, Nike yeah. Nike sponsored one from May 2017. Yeah, for sure. And I think just from a broadcast perspective, um, it was just done a lot better. I know that when Sunset and Vine announced that they were going to be the um, that they were going to be producing the event, it was kind of coupled, supported by all these announcements that it was going to be kind of you know a revolutionary broadcast. And I think that was kind of Part of the interest of it all was not just the fact that he was doing it, it was kind of how he was doing it, what the breakdown of all of it was, how quickly he was doing each mile. Um, there were those stats about, you know, how much um, how much wear and tear it was having on his body. Um, so there was so much going on the way around it, it was kind of, you know, you can easily, no one really watches a marathon normally, but there was so much going on all around it that it was enough to keep people interested throughout. And I think just even from a spectator perspective, you could see from the amount of people that turned out it's mm. a human interest story it's not just a kind of sporting story it's a transcended yeah you know, to an extent in the same way that um i guess these these types of sponsored uh sponsored things do like the um red bull stratus all those years ago yeah um it's just something that catches the imagination in a different way to a traditional sporting event and i think on this occasion, it's something that really managed to take to that next level, and not just because he was able to run it within. Yeah, I mean, the, the Stratus example is, is uh, I think, a pertinent one. Is that it definitely shared some of the same DNA of that type of event. Um, uh, I, 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 I picked up as well on the, the abundance of people watching, which, you know, when you compare it to running around a Formula One track, it did feel a little bit more like there was a collective element to mm. it. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of conversation about the identity of the two sponsors. Ineos uh, have kind of jumped into sport with with two feet, and their intentions are, you know, not a hundred percent clear. But they're probably uh, there's a there's a there's a reputation that they want to enhance there because they they don't always make headlines in in the most positive way. Um, and Nike, of course, had a mm. a pretty difficult week. Um, timing was slightly unfortunate, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I think everyone kind of knew what they signed up for with this. And I think that was kind of something you could tell in the aftermath. There was, there were a lot of people sort of cutting it and saying, you know, oh, but 
it's just another sort of sales yeah. point for night. People are going to be looking at these shoes now and thinking I'll be able to shave a minute off the half marathon personal best and whatever. Yeah. But I mean, you know, no, everyone everyone knew this wasn't going to be recorded as an actual marathon time. We all knew that this was extremely manufactured. Um, the conditions were exactly how we wanted them. We had pace setters. So, yeah, you know, it's a tricky one, but I just think the fact that everyone... Everyone knew that already going into it. Yeah. Um, I was I was personally willing to look past the uh, past the sponsor on this occasion, and you know, even with um, when you're doing human nature defying event like this, uh, you do need the backing. Of someone's going to pay for it. For yeah, sure. someone's got to pay for it. I think you know Nike. There were a few comments about it having happened in the same week as the Oregon project closing and the Alberto Salazar ban and, and everything else. I think that Nike continuing to uh, Market sportswear products through uh, through an association with athletes. Not the biggest shop in the world, but um, Ineos is an interesting example. I think what I would say is that it sets a template for a kind of event that, or a kind of malleability around what a sports event can be. That's interesting. It's not the first set piece like this that we've ever seen, but it was one that had a, a, a really interesting purpose behind it. it. Had a legitimacy to the goal that was was quite compelling mm-hmm. um, and if you're Ineos the idea that you are not just sponsoring something but you're kind of facilitating the bringing together of all the the different specialists who needed to be involved in it and um, you know whether it's the team of pacemakers or whether it's you know the, the development of, of the lasers and the, the, the car that can kind of accelerate and decelerate at fractions of a, a, a kilometre an hour mm-hmm. really reliably um, or you know the, the, the kind of logistics of where you're placing nutrition stops and all that type of stuff. Um, there's kind of more to that than just slapping your logo on the side of a, an athletics track. I think that that's mm. that's quite uh, quite. It makes you ask whether these are the kind of events that a sponsor might be more interested in creating if they were to put together something purely on their own terms. For sure, well, it's a it's kind of a. You're starting with a blank sheet of paper, right? It's you're not kind of um, tied down to these sort of rigid rules of kind of you know sticks on ident- identity as as you are when you sponsor, say, an IAAF event. You've kind of got to you're within their means. They're the ones kind of dictating how the event's going to look. Whereas when you kind of when you've got an overarching sponsor taking the event themselves, as you say, there's all these other cool things you can try around it. And I think that was something that sort of came across from the event, as I've said already. Um, you know, there wasn't that kind of. I don't know. It was. I maybe it was. Maybe it was also the fact that it was taking place just a week or two, week after the uh, athletics championships as well. It actually, made athletics seem fun again. Yeah, it was. It was good timing in that sense. Yeah, I think I kind of. You know, as, as far as the future of these things goes, I go a little bit two ways. One, you can see the possibilities from a commercial perspective. The other, you you don't get to break the two-hour barrier in the marathon every time. So it's kind of. Creating an event that has the same legitimacy is, is is going to be difficult. Taking it in the context of the Oregon project and what befell that whole enterprise, um, if you're outside the rules of competition, you're outside the rules of competition, right? You can do whatever you want. I'm not suggesting that anything like that went on in this case, but you know, the, the prospect of this being an avenue that you can go down and. Approach it in whatever way you choose is is one that I'm sure will exercise some minds as well. Yeah, because I mean, also regardless of the fact that as we we're saying, these but these um, all these conditions which wouldn't be allowed in actual competition. Everyone stood whenever someone asks who was the guy who ran under two hours first. I'm still going to say the name Kachogi, aren't they? It's, yeah. Uh, regardless of uh, whether it was during competition or not, that's how people are going to remember it. Yeah. Um, women's marathon record broken on Sunday as well, of course. Also, in, yeah. in, Pretty spectacular by that circumstances, yeah. The other story that's, that's kind of dominated this week um, internationally is the NBA's misadventures in, in China, or that I'm probably being a little bit unfair there. Their difficult communications puzzle that they've had to work out in the last few days. What have, what have you thought about that? Obviously, just to set some context for anyone who's not aware of it, but this was the Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Murray, who uh, tweeted a pretty blanket, bland tweet in support of Hong Kong 
protesters against the Chinese government um, and began a diplomatic storm the likes of which yeah. I don't think sport has had commercially for, for a little while. Yeah, it was just an avalanche that followed, wasn't it, of things. It was, um, who knew a guy with X amount of social media followers could somehow spark a massive incident. Um, so yeah, what happened? Gosh, I mean, you had all of the NBA sponsors um, suspending their activity with the league. Um, you had Tencent not streaming games. Um, CCTV. CCTV. Yeah, not, I mean, not showing games. Yeah, and you, it's just it was incredibly bizarre, really, to read all the stories and kind of as it unfolded and how it had all it could all be traced back to that one one tweet and I think uh, LeBron James came out and said it's kind of like the latest development he said it was kind of an uneducated tweet mm. is how he's described it um, which I think has gone down quite well in China maybe not so much in the US but you can kind of get where he's coming from to an extent in the incredibly awkward position that it would have put those NBA players that were out there sort of representing the league and obviously those representatives for the league that were out there the timing of it was just very very bizarre yeah um, Houston Rockets was enormously popular in China as well. Yeah, that as well. Um, I uh, can't remember the figure, but I think it was what it was predicted how many millions it was going to cost the Rockets, let alone mm. the NBA. Um, but yeah, so it's it's this really incredibly awkward situation, isn't it? Where, isn't it, where the um, you have the NBA, which is one which is you know it's a very open organisation. It mm. sort of. Uh, trumpets it, giving people a voice uh, it's having people speak their minds um, and then on the other side of that it's got a business to run and outside of the US obviously China is its probably its biggest benefactor yeah so and probably it's its biggest opportunity and its long term yeah biggest likely source of threat the only place you could imagine a rival to the NBA emerging and this includes the US at any point in the conceivable future would be China. Yeah, exactly. And it just kind of felt like a bit of a power game, didn't it? And it was quite harrowing to see such a powerful sports organisation silenced in that way, almost mm. kind of being, you know... Yeah, I mean, and, and such a confident... I mean, that's what I would say about it. It's, it's usually very comfortable navigating the kind of waters domestically that uh, other sports organisations try and stay absolutely as far away from as they can and it does it with a kind of a self-assurance that I think is quite hard to manage on that scale. This was really, this is where you saw the kind of, the, the theoretical messaging was quite strong. I felt like some of the, a couple, you know, I know they, there was the issue with them having released two separate, not quite indistinguishable statements to Chinese and, and English media and the English one. Uh, by virtue of translation, seeming to be slightly more nuanced. But the you know a couple of the statements that Adam Silver made were, were quite impressive mm. um, in terms of the, them offering a kind of sophisticated and thoughtful defence of free speech. Mm. But the reality of defending that in China um, proved to be a, a slightly different exercise. You had that really painfully awkward moment where the journalist from CNN asked a couple of players mm. um, about what their thoughts on the situation were and an NBA spokesperson kind of well, sorry one of the team spokespeople yeah. stepped in and said sorry we're, we're not going to engage with this yeah I think that's just what was so interesting to see about it is just how delicate a situation it was you know it's almost like this massive sort of funnel of money was just hanging by the balance mm. and it was almost if there's someone's about to pull the plug from underneath it um, it was just such a balancing act and I mean it kind of seems like it's clearing itself up a little bit now dare I say I know that Tencent have started streaming games yeah. again um, everyone's kind of waiting for everyone to start yeah. looking the other way and yeah it was just sort of some of the clips that you saw you know billboards being stripped down um, paint going over posters and everything it was yeah really quite really quite incredible um, and pretty unprecedented I'd say yeah. um, and I think what was interesting about it, you know, it's sort of we always talk, we always write about a lot of the sports that China is investing in mm. at the moment. Um, it just kind of shows the implications of the organisations that are accepting that money. You know, it's, this is kind of this is how you've got to act if you're going to be accepting this money. This is what yeah. this is. Um, you're going to have to watch what you say because you know a lot of a lot of the money which China is pumping into these sports isn't insignificant. It's 
money that a lot of organizations will be making long-term plans with. Yeah. So it's, it's, and um, it's China and, and Chinese companies, and it's obviously from an economic perspective, especially China is not always that easy to divide from its regime, but I think from a cultural perspective, people have kind of told themselves that they can. There's a lot of people in China, and, and you're reaching that population as much as you are um, that country. But yeah, as you say, it's uh, the, the, the implications of it, yeah. of the, the kind of uh, the wager that uh, organizations are making has, has, been, has been highlighted pretty starkly. Uh, Steve, you've not been in China. You've been in Japan. No, I did have a stopover in Hong Kong briefly. Ah. Um, did you get, did you get involved? Did you any tweets? Yeah, in solidarity with the. No, I was just navigating the Hong Kong airport most of the time, <laughs> trying to find my next uh, next flight. But Fair it enough. all went smoothly. Um, so you have been. You spent about what two and a half weeks um, during the pool stage of, of the Rugby World Cup, um, mostly following. Fiji, that's right, which has taken you to, to different parts of, of the host nation. It's taken me almost the length of Japan. Um, I wasn't um, available for the, the opening game against Australia, which was in Sapporo, but my first stop was in the, the region and city of Kamaishi, um, which um, some may know as an area that was heavily hit during the the tsunami and earthquake of 2011 um, so eight years ago and it was, it was a huge topic of conversation in the build-up to a game usually you're speaking to coaches and and players about the the game ahead and their their, their, their uh, second pool game against uruguay um, but most of the conversation with media not just local but international media as well was about the the events of eight years ago and mm. how it's hit the the region and, and the importance of having a having a, a pool game in, in the region and I think actually it was um, well received I mean the second game between Canada and Namibia was was one of the three games um, cancelled over the weekend um, but we saw some some very humbling images of the Canada side out helping locals uh, clean up some of the mess after the typhoon that, that yeah. cancelled those games yeah because the typhoon has been an enormously difficult challenge um, for, for people across that region of Japan. Um, but the Rugby World Cup so far has been a pretty good news story for, for Japan, not least on the field, of course, um, winning against Scotland on Sunday to become the first Asian team yeah, into right. the last eight of a Rugby World Cup, which is an incredible achievement. What's your impression been of the reception for the event as a whole? Um, very positive. Uh, needless to say, generally it's been a uh, an experience for international rugby fans to see rugby played in a different setting, mm -hmm. especially one on of this of the World Rugby World Cups um, billing. Um, but also, I think it's uh, been quite interesting to see how Japan has welcomed the Rugby World Cup. Um, it's been an opportunity to see some of those traditions and put a, a, a mark and a stamp on on the tournament themselves. Very interesting watching some of the games with Japanese fans and a mix with home nations and, and some of the uh, some of the nations from Australia and, and, and New Zealand as well. Um, and ju just um, sort of that realisation that they have a pretty good rugby team. I'm sure there would be a hardcore fan base that saw Japan win three pool games in 2015 and become the first to do so and not progress to a quarterfinal. But um, you only have to see some of the, the videos and the, the reaction reaction within homes and bars and uh, and the stadium itself in Yokohama um, over the weekend just to see what it means to this country um, but not just as a sporting spectacle I, th I think being able to engage with a new fan base and, and, and spread that message uh, engage with a, a new culture is a really important step for, for the sport and yeah. so far it's, it's uh, uh, showing great promise. Of course we spent a few minutes talking about China and it's likely influence on, on the sports industry as a whole. Um, Japan has been and now is becoming a, an even more important market for more and more rights holders and you know, World Rugby, it's, it's a great opportunity for them to, to kind of make a mark there and to reach a big audience through that region. I mean, Japan is a bigger country than most of the countries that play rugby. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, to, to have them established as a... Uh, a legitimate force in the sport is is something that's going to be 
pretty important for world rugby commercially? I, th- I think um, not only for the sport. I think the way world rugby has um, looked to engage with this audience as well. Um, the, the figures from the first two weeks were reported on, I think, over 650 million um, social video views, um, which is more than 200 million that the entire England 2015 Rugby World Cup um, accrued in in mm. four six weeks. So I think it works both ways. Japan has definitely put its mark on the on the the tournament and the sport, both off the field and of course on it. Yeah. Um, but I think above all, rugby has sort of shown that it can adapt and it can work with different territories and audiences and, yeah. and um, help grow the sport in doing so. What was your impression of, um, of the cut-through that the tournament's achieving so far? Obviously, it would have reached another level in the context of, of the news that's, that's going on there at the moment, but it would have reached another, another level with Japan's progress over the weekend. But how, you know, it's... It's a version of the taxi driver question, but how much of an impression did you get that the average person is following this tournament? Um, I can't speak for the population in like big cities like Tokyo and, and Kobe and Yokohama. I didn't, I didn't have the luxury of going there. Um, from a first-person perspective, I, I suppose speaking with fans and, and going and trying to sort out some of the games, not every bar and pub has sort of engage with it in the same way and I suppose there's been occasions where you've um, found yourself sat with home nations fans as you would here mm. um, that said I think the fan zones have been very well populated and you've seen across um, social media and some of like the highlights how engaged the country has been with the, with the sport yeah. especially around the Japanese games yeah. um, that they, they had 40 million viewership for the the Ireland victory. We haven't got the the uh, the broadcast figures yet for the, the the Scotland game, but it's definitely been a sort of yeah. Those games have been national events. They, those have been national events, and I think they're suddenly finding a sport that that, that they know that they're good at, and I think that's been important for J- Japanese fans embracing with mm. that. Uh, that. That that said, you, you mentioned the the digital figures before, and I think it's definitely. Um, resonated with uh, the Japanese audience and the Asian audience. I think Japan has become, become one of the, um, their audience has become one of the highest digitally for the Rugby World Cup, um, if, if not the uh, the top two. So it, it's definitely taken a, a, a big step forward for, for the sport in Japan. Yeah, now with your, uh, from your vantage point, and you know, obviously you were there in immediate capacity working alongside World rugby, so it's a slightly different one from what a fan might experience. But um, how did things feel logistically on the ground? Did it has it all been coming together pretty well, or anything that you'd highlight? I think very well in the sense that when we went to Kamaishi for the first time, it, it's, it's a, a two-hour bullet train up to uh, um, up to the region, and another two-hour local train to, to Kamaishi. So it's a very rural place, but I think that's the um, what stood out for me in in, in this tournament that the, the tournament's taken to far mm. reaches of the country and it's been a tournament that's spread across quite a large country. It, it, I suppose in England 2015 you saw a lot of, lot more fans um, together in different locations so you're able to, to see some of that atmosphere but um, getting a train from Kamaishi back down to Tokyo and you see Japanese fans and... and uh, and Uruguayan fans, Fiji fans, all, all sharing in the same moment. I think it's quite a special, special thing. Um, I've seen international fans making sure that they buy their Japanese rugby shirts as well, mm-hmm. which um, on occasion, because of the interest, um, I've seen uh, merchandise sell out and obviously have to be replenished and things like that. But um, it's not just the Japanese fans getting behind the behind the, uh, the Japan team. I think yeah. you've seen a lot of the international support really engaging with that mm. that 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 story that narrative the japan side that's got to the first quarter final you covered the last world cup story didn't you? yeah that's right in england so i was just kind of wondering if it had a you know if it had a different feel to it to the last one what was if what was different to it um compared to what was in england it's, it's interesting that japan while not a traditional rugby nation does have quite a large a strong rugby history 
um, in Kamaishi, they have the uh, Kam- Kamaishi Sea Waves that won the, the national title seven years in a row between the 70s and 80s. So they, they understand the sport, and, um, but perhaps don't have the same connection with it that some of the Western nations have. And when, when I covered the 2015 Rugby World Cup, I, I covered predominantly in, in, in Gloucester, which is sort of the spiritual home of rugby almost in the Forest of Dean there. So um, quite a different um, experience in the terms of you've got a hardcore rugby fan base in in England. But above that, I think in Japan, they're very humbled and um, grateful to be able to host a, a tournament of that size. I know they've um, obviously had the FIFA World Cup um, in, in 2002, but to, to have the World Cup come to some of those regions um, outside of Tokyo and, and Yokohama and Kobe and, and, and touch people that haven't necessarily um, held an event of, of that scale I, th- I think is was pretty special for them and especially coupled with the um, the events of 2011 and tsunami and the earthquake that devastated the regions was um, just created a, a different and probably a more um, unified atmosphere than I experienced before um, and wearing your um, rugby stash and your know, rugby uh, uh, shirts moving around the, the these these towns and cities and um, people were very welcoming and um, grateful for the tournament to be yeah. there. Um, Steve, you have a piece on Rakuten's involvement in sport, which is on the Sports Pro website for anyone who wants to check that out. Uh, we will check back in, I think, with the Rugby World Cup in a couple of weeks' time uh, once we reach the closing stages. But thanks very much. For that perspective, Steve, we're going to leave it there for part one of the Sports Pro podcast. We're going to be looking at a, an unusual story in English volleyball uh, just after this. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Now, Steve, you've been telling us about your adventures in Japan. Um, you're going to be in Monaco next week. That's right. For the Sportel broadcast convention. Uh, look out for Steve there and some of our other Sports Pro colleagues. Um, if you are into digital broadcasting, if that's your line of work, then you will also be interested, I'm sure, in the Sports Pro OTT Summit which is going to be taking place once again in Madrid from the 19th to the 21st of November. Uh, you should all know by now that there's tons of great speakers, great lineup, great delegates. It's all going to be very high-end and unmissable stuff. Uh, head to sportsbro-ott.com to find out more and to secure your pass if you have not done so already. Um, as I mentioned in passing last week, uh, Sports Pro OTT USA is going to be debuting in Atlanta, in February of next year. More details on that very soon, I promise. But yes, sportspro-ott-usa. That's where you're going to find out more about those details when they emerge. Sam, what is on sportspromedia.com right now? Right now? Right now, today, we've got um, an interview with Brent Show from the uh, San Francisco 49ers talking about kind of how their move to Levi Stadium has really changed their off-field proposition and driven revenues. Um, a few other bits and bobs in there about their winning start to the season, how that affects things, or even how it doesn't. Um, and also, you know, keeping that money coming in throughout the uh, throughout the year rather than just during that uh, during those ten home games a season. Um, what have we got coming up? We've got a piece from uh, our editorial director, Michael Long, on the NCAA. Yeah. And editorial the director and long-term podcast absentee. Michael. Yeah, he's uh, elusive as Mike, but uh, he'll have the latest on kind of what's going on with the, uh, with the kind of the battle to get student-athletes uh, compensated for their, their image rights, uh, name and likeness. Uh, we've also got an NBA preview going up soon, uh, which we're all plodding along and <laughs> working hard on. Uh, I'll also be posting a column this week, kind of just summarising what we've been talking about on this podcast, really, about right. uh, about Japan, uh, the Rugby World Cup, and 
kind of the implications of that for World Rugby going forward. And I'm sure you'll have a column as well. You know? I will. And I've also got an interview uh, with Rick Welts from the Golden State Warriors. Nice. Which will be emerging sometime around the start of the NBA season. So look out for that. Yeah, plenty to look forward to there. Plenty to look forward to. Um, <laughs> did anyone see the other day Petr Cech, former Arsenal and Chelsea goalkeeper Petr Cech, turning up for Guildford yes. in the National Ice Hockey League? Was it a childhood dream? Was it, it was apparently a childhood dream and it's obviously garnered national attention for the team um, as they, they won in dramatic fashion, inevitably through a penalty shootout because, of course, um, but it shows the, the ceiling for some of these sports, uh, some of these kind of globally popular sports that are not locally catching light um, is it's, it's, it's higher than it would appear at times. Um, at least that's the that's the theory, anyway, that's being explored uh, by the guys at IBB Polonia. They are a London-based volleyball team. They're the national champions, and they are going to become the first team to play in the European Volleyball Champions League uh, when they take the court on the 30th of November. They're playing in some quite modest venues across, uh, across the city, um, but they will be turning out at the Cockerbox Arena in a couple of weeks' time and trying to kind of create a really premium event around their participation in the Champions League. Uh, they've been doing a, a load of bold and creative things to try and bridge the gap from the kind of relative obscurity of, of domestic volleyball to what is on offer on, a, on an international scale uh, for a London-based team, potentially. They're working with Seven League, uh, the digital media specialists um, who work with the likes of FIFA and UEFA as well. Let's take a listen. Okay, we have Bartek Wusch. I hope I've got that right. CEO of IBB Polonia uh, Volleyball Club in London. And we also have Alex Inglot, who many of you will know from his time uh, at Sport Radar and, of course, now at the ATP Tour, where he is a board member. But he's here in his capacity as Alex. You're going to have to line this one up for us. Yeah, I'm just offering some strategic advice to, to Bartek and his team at IBB Polonia. The club is a club that I played for when I was 17 years old, so uh, I've kind of come back in as a as a suit, yeah. uh, rather than as a pair of trainers, <laughs> as I was. So it, this is a this is an unusual story because I, I spoke to the two of you over the summer, um, and I know Alex that you've been using some of the connections that you have to to talk about the IBB Polonia story um, in. in in places where it might not have been heard otherwise but basically it's a volleyball team that is outgrowing its current environment quite quickly and you're kind of looking for ways of uh, maximizing the potential of that and, and using whatever assets you have to hand whatever methods you have to hand at, at that level of, uh, of, of elite sport yeah, um, well, the club was in operation since 1973, so we, we, we have a long, uh, long history. But five years ago, we've decided that we will uh, introduce high-level volleyball events uh, to Londoners. Uh, we have some good connections abroad in foreign leagues where, where, where the sport is very successful. And uh, we thought we'll give it a try. So one thing led to another, and this year we are playing Champions League. Yeah. See, that's the billing I should have given you. The first English club to play in, in the Volleyball Champions League. Um, but let's let's get a sense of where that puts you because you know we're not great with volleyball or certainly in the UK we we, we don't really uh, understand the scale of it in other markets. Um, yeah, I mean I, I can speak to that. Too. You know when I when I picked up volleyball in about 1998, um, I I picked up volleyball because my maths teacher, who was the volleyball teacher at school, was Polish. He knew that I was Polish from my background. And he knew that I played tennis, so I was tall, coordinated and Polish, which are pretty good uh, specifications to start playing volleyball. So I, I picked it up uh, and rose through the ranks, in inverted commas, in English volleyball quite quickly. Started training with Polonia uh, within my first year of really playing the sport and, uh, and then joined uh, the England squad and trained with the England squad for a number of years and played in the top league for about 10 years for Polonia and then another club. But at that time... Volleyball, as you said, I just 
really wasn't on the map. But it was usually driven either by universities or by communities of immigrants or, or uh, you know, generations of immigrants who had come, whether it's from Lithuania, from Poland, these countries that have a rich volleyball history and heritage. Um, and they played amateur games against each other. Yes, they, some of them trained more, some of them less. Uh, you know, we, but we would, you know, we'd all drive up in a minibus that we hired. We'd all make sandwiches for the away team that came down. We made drinks. It's, it was like a very amateur sport. Uh, I had to pay subsidies to, to play and to, to keep the, the club going. Mm. Um, and, you know, I remember I played in the England squad. Uh, one year we had a training camp in Upper Hayford. It's a disused American military base. And we had a Christmas camp there in January with no heating in the sports hall. And we were sleeping on squash court floors on a mattress in a sleeping bag yeah. for a three-day block. So that was that was volleyball in England. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like good team bonding. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely one way to spin it. <laughs> but, I mean, certainly, you know, as opposed to, to Poland or Brazil or... Italy or places where you know volleyball has a real status as an elite sport I think here it's always been viewed or certainly widely viewed as kind of a, a, a PE exercise it's something you do in a gym and then I guess there's a bit of a disconnect between that and and it being a, a professional sport of, of some standing and how, how does that correlate to, to your experience running a professional team in, in London? The problem of the sport in this country is that that the sport doesn't exist on the event level. Mm. The sport level is okay, I would say. The, the potential is huge, as everywhere in the world. It's just there is no appetite or no nowhere for players to aspire to progress to. I'm, I'm great. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that the national team was even having camps at the time, even though it was in the cold you know, sports hall. But right now there are no training camps for the national team. And national team would try to go to some away matches but how they can win if they don't train yeah so you know that's why what you know and th th there won't be any money in sport if there are no wins if there are if there are no money you know it's it's a self uh you know it's the wish it's a, a vicious, vicious cycle then. it's yeah. a vicious cycle so we decided we decided to disturb it we are trying to organize high level events something for players to aspire to young kids to aspire to to, to join the game yeah so the, the biggest event that you have on the horizon is is your first Champions League game, which is is happening at the end of October in the in the Copper Box, and we'll we'll get onto that uh, shortly. But the first thing that you've done is to try and, as you know, as as you've enjoyed more success on the court, to kind of try and generate interest away from it. So why don't you you talk about some of the the things that you've been you've been doing in that area? Well, the the project we 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 run, we call it the Volleyball Two Point Zero. So we try and we, we want to be even better than the established markets like Poland, Brazil, Italy, Russia. Uh, we have to be creative. We know that in London, especially, the, the, the fan base is very spoiled for choice. So mm. we have to deliver them something that's out of ordinary. So uh, a lot of PR opportunities, a lot of media stunts. So, uh, you know, we started televising our matches. Okay, but no one wanted to take the feed in, 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 in England. So we, we signed a deal with, with the Polish broadcaster. Mm. That's a major broadcaster for volleyball in Europe. So our matches from London would be beamed over satellite to Poland and we would have 120,000 viewers. So things like that. Then we would sign a world champion to our squad. Current one champion. It was 2016 when uh, Krzysztof Ignaczak uh, from Polish national team as a Libro joined us. So this guy is an absolute icon of volleyball. So, and you know, it worked. It, it gives us good publicity. So naturally, the next step was to get some foreigner uh, to our squad as well because we know London is multicultural city. So last year we've signed Jiba. And mm. to, to people in volleyball, or I think in sport business, this rings a bell because this is a volleyball god, a volleyball celebrity, a person who's won Olympic gold medals, won world championships. And we just talked to them, talked talk to him, and he said, yeah, I will play. And we also put a lot of uh, investment and effort into the, how we present the events. Mm. So when it's televised, of course, you know, we spend a lot of uh, effort and time on the presentation, lights, DJs. It has to be a party. It has to be a volleyball party. And yeah. that's why in London, we hope and we think we will succeed because people are open to entertainment opportunities. And if we add volleyball to that, it will be a full package. Yeah. Um, if we um, take it back a step, so obviously, Polonia has a it's a it's a Polish club. It has a Polish identity in in London. Was that the primary audience? You, you mentioned that you 
you went to a, a Polish broadcaster. Was that the primary audience for you, that the Polish community in London and uh, and and back in Poland? We are an English club. I think that that has to be said because you know even though we called Polonia, that means a Polish diaspora in in Polish and. But but we always represented the English league. We always mm. we are the English champion. So it's the, the heritage is from Poland. And of course, the natural direction initially was when I joined the club. The low hanging fruits were mm. the Polish fans and Polish media, because even right now, I I have daily interviews on national media talking about our upcoming match in Poland, and we struggle to get onto the media in Britain. Of course, it's gradually changing. But, you know, after we've uh, had a good presence in the media in Poland, we started mm. to reach out. So then Brazil, Italy, Germany, because we want to cater for every volleyball fan. But a lot of know-how and contacts that we bring uh, come from Poland as well. But we are 2.0. We want to be even better than them. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the exercises, Alex, that you've been able to, to put in place um, since you've been aware, obviously the Champions League qualification gives you a target, it gives you something else to uh, to, to work from. What what have been some of the, the things that you've been able to do to try and, and build the, the profile of the club since then? Yeah, I think it's it's a case of, you know, like I think as Bartek outlined, the creativity that characterises the club is pretty clear already. So there wasn't... It was trying to see if we could add any more layers of creativity to what had already been done over the last five years. Uh, you know, we're playing a Croatian team, so the question was, you know, can we get the Croatian uh, diaspora or Croatian people, immigrants, um, who are based in London to see if they can come? So we we went to speak to we went to speak to the embassy, we went to speak to the local radio and uh, publications, we went to some shops and restaurants as well to see if they could help us with promoting our event because it's an opportunity to see their best club playing mm. in their backyard, their current backyard. So we, you know, we targeted the obvious low hanging fruit in this case, which is the Croatian fans. The, as Bartek said, Jiba uh, opens up the Brazilian market mm. for us because in, in Brazil, he literally is a God. I mean, he's the best volleyball player they've ever produced. Um, when they've produced the best volleyball the world has ever seen. So, you know, you don't have to do a lot to promote him. You mention his name and doors open. So again, it's a similar concept talking to restaurants, supermarket chains, you know, they, there are a lot of these Brazilian supermarket chains, Rodizio Rico type restaurants, <laughs> and just seeing with, because they get excited about considering whether they, maybe they'll do the catering for our event, maybe yeah. they'll do some simple advertising and awareness raising, maybe they'll do some kind of more creative marketing together. So. That's some of the things we've done. We were we also spoke to, you know, being in the Champions League, it is something, but it's also, we're trying to use it not just by itself. So, for example, um, at the end of this week, we're going to be playing against, we're going to be travelling to Poland, playing against the best club in Poland. And that's probably actually going to be the bigger test for us because the best club in Poland is probably one of the top five clubs in Europe. Yeah, It's almost like we're playing a Champions League final or semi-final with this match. It's a club based in South Poland, actually only about half an hour's drive from where my family uh, resides from. But I'm going to be going to that match. And it's that's another opportunity. We, we're, we're obviously couching it as a warm-up game, mm. because it is. It's four days before our away game in, in Zagreb. But again, it's what can we do? That's being televised on Polish TV. We're going to try and pick, obviously publicize the feed. Maybe we're also, what we're trying to do is we're trying to organize a, I guess I would call it a kind of a fan zone, so that our fans who can't travel to Poland can see that match here somewhere. So we're working with the Polish center in Hammersmith and a few pubs or restaurants in Poland to see if we can organize a few fan zones for those fans to go and watch that match. And then we'll hopefully roll that into fan zones for the Champions League matches as well, for those fans that can't go to Zagreb, for example. These are things that, you know, they've been done before yeah. for these big institutions, you know, with your FIFA World Cup or, you know, Tottenham, whatever it may be. But it's trying to introduce it and finding ways to make it fit our demographic, make it fit our ambition levels, but really just grow grow the product and grow yeah. the availability of it. I mean, this is this is kind of getting on to why this was an interesting story when we when we first started talking about it, which is that you know there, there's so much potential at this level for for teams to expand and for leagues to expand, um, but that there are challenges in in being able to accomplish that. But you know, I mean, something we were just talking about before we started, Bartek was um, about facilities and there being London, for example, is a city with lots of 
massive stadiums and big arenas and you know things for the kind of 20,000 up category of event but in sport specifically there aren't that many facilities that cater to something that's you know a, a little bit more at the kind of four or five thousand kind of level yeah um thanks for trying very hard to avoid the word niche or <laughs> or, or or not popular i think volleyball generally in the world needs to understand its position in the world because mm-hmm. it's it's paid played by it's played by 900 million people all over the world but it's a top 10 sport in terms of participation in, in the world but it, it it's it's not a sport that is able to sell out arenas of 50,000 people outside of Poland mm. yet so we are trying to do it and um when it comes to the you know the facilities in london it is a big problem of course uh maybe until us they they weren't a strong there wasn't a strong signal that the facilities are needed mm. but we are in the same boat as as basketball we are in the same boat as as other indoor sports maybe like handball you know they they are mature professional money earning sports they ha- that have no presence in england and yeah. we just think volleyball is the sport that we can bring here successfully to Londoners. Start with 3,000, then move on to 6,000, and then sell out, you know, out to arena, and then uh, we will build purpose-built arena for volleyball. But it, it is a popular sport worldwide that we understand, we have know-how, and we are trying to introduce here. But the, the, the problem with, with bringing product to London is much bigger than the lack of facilities everything is expensive in london so so we have we have big obstacles but we feel if we tackle those obstacles there there is future but i like to say that volleyball has the advantage of of backwardness so you know everything is possible for us a small club like us within five years is playing champions league yeah try this in football yeah so if we grow at the rate we are growing in five years we'll be number one club in europe possibly and then we are in the right market because we are in the high GDP market in London and the future is bright. But I think um, one thing I would underline, you know, we talk about infrastructure and costs being prohibitive. I think the other thing is about uh, staff and services, really. I mean, Bartek in the last five years has done a lot of good work to take us from where we were to where we are today. But for me, when we're talking about the, the, the delta or the opportunity between where we are and where we can be, as you mentioned, and there is that space, and it's not impossible. It's not like how do you take Barcelona to the next level? You got to be super creative and super resourceful. Mm. Here, you're not reinventing a lot of wheels to do it. But what you need is people who know how to do it, mm. who have done it before, who've got the contacts, the experience, who know how to roll out those next stages, those next tiers. Because to Bartek's point, you know, London is massively multicultural. The people who play the sport here or have done are from all over the place, Egyptians, uh, Saudi Arabians, Europeans, Americans, South Americans. They all live in London, they all play volleyball. Those are the people that play. I'm sure you multiply that X times for the people who actually love it and watch it, because they'll probably watch their home league. Mm. So there, there is this latent group of people who are already low-hanging fruit. Can we find the most efficient, best ways to reach out to them? That's probably one of the reasons I'm really delighted that we're working with Seven League, because they're really forward thinking about using social media and digital marketing to really segment audiences, find them, give them what they want to hear and pull them out mm. of whatever behavior they were doing before to the behavior that we want. So I'm really keen, really, one of the things I'd love to come out of this conversation is for, for people to hear the ambition, hear the creativity, but hear the opportunity that if they offer services and products or if they feel they have the expertise to help Polonia, this is, could be a real great case study. It's really good for the CV. It's really good. You know, this is a, there's so much potential here to build something with Bartek and the existing team. That's why I joined the journey, what, three or four months ago, because yeah. I see that I can add some value and can take us to a certain level. We just need a few more people to really, to, as Bartek says, to really cement a very strong position in the European market, not just in the British market. Yeah, yeah. I'm pleased you mentioned Seven League, not because of the, the kind of extended pitch, but... The, um, <laughs> I wanted to get onto the area where the, you know the, there is less of a barrier, I guess, to expansion is is online. Yeah, we we understand that what we have to do is to really take care of our brand. So every presence we have online or in the media has to be much better than we are right now. Uh, for many months or even years, we were 
using the phrase fake it till you make it because we know a lot of people would have the first contact with the volleyball through us so we have to make sure it's a good one so all the media presence social media seven league broadcasts we all invest in this so it's the presence uh in the in in the in the in the in the media market i say we 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 don't we're not afraid investing. We have great investors on board. The part of the name is IBB. It's mm. the builders wholesale. And we were talking this morning. They don't mind investing as long as it brings us return on investments down the line. So, yeah, all the footage, all the photos, all the video, all the communication, press releases, things that sound obvious to people, to listeners or people who work in sports business. Five years ago, six years ago, no one was doing this in British volleyball and we were doing this and now others are following us as mm. well. So that's another thing. We are trying to in, in sort of, you know, shake the, the market here, show clubs what's possible, give also British players opportunity to, to, to develop because we feel that the lack of results on the national level is also the reason why the sport is not in the media. Yeah, and as, as you mentioned, you know, one of the great things that we had with Polsat when we started working with Polsat was they sent over their technicians and production teams and told us what are the basics, what are the things that we need, you know, what are the staff, what are the angles, what are the cameras, what are the, are the you know, the OB production vans that we require for Polsat to be able to do the job. But obviously we're learning on the job, so these are our people now mm. who are upskilling. And so that means that our production value and the product that you see on the TV, whether it's going beaming over to Pulsar, whether we use it ourselves on our Facebook page or in for the local market, it just means that the product comes across much slicker, the camera work is better, the slow motions are more engaging. Mm. And so that's a really useful way where that partnership allowed us to upskill that part of our offering. Seven League, again, same thing, you know, we wanted to segment the market, we wanted to understand who, who, are, the, who are the people we can talk to, how do we speak to them? We were having really interesting conversations about you know, West Ham is an obvious kind of fan base of sports followers who maybe we can tap into. How do we tap into them? Do we do we this talk is, to this is specifically for the Copper Box? Exactly, because again. they're obviously neighbours at the Stratford Arena uh, or the, the stadium. So we wanted to think, you know, do we talk to them as neighbours? So do we couch, you know, we're your new neighbours, come and visit us. Do we, do we go a little bit tongue-in-cheek and say, you know, you're not going to see Champions League at your stadium, but you can see it at our stadium... We decided not to go down that route because it's <laughs> perhaps a little incendiary. And then we talked about, do we use Brexit as something, you know, because it's European and we're a European club and this is England. How do, you know, we're trying these creative things and testing them. And that's the good thing with, uh, with digital media. You can test something, see if it's resonating, if it's getting positive feedback. If it is, you carry it on, you roll it out to different audiences. If it's not, you stop it, you reassess. So that's the, again, that's know-how that we're picking up, uh, that we're learning from Seven League. And I think that's great. But actually, there's a certain capacity to what Polonia has in-house. Mm. You know, uh, you know, you've got Bartek, you've got me, you've got a few other members of the team who are part-time or working to do their bit. But you know, we want to kind of build the team out and then make sure that the expertise is being fed into our in-house uh, capabilities. And that's how we get a momentum. We start building the enterprise. The performance, obviously, is another part piece. Yeah, and also to add uh, another reason to you know understand why there is advantage of backwardness in volleyball it's unregulated completely the market mm -hmm. english volleyball has no branding or marketing restrictions so when we play champions league we can have a certain number of stickers on the floor and, and that's it when we play english league and it's still televised on 200,000 viewers in poland or around the world we can have whatever we want we can have a brand and net we can have a sticker in the shape of a sponsor's product on the floor we can do everything we want and that's the magic of it i think because we have few more years until it becomes regulated yeah. and us having you know such a clever people like alex uh, seven league working with us it gives us this idea that they give us ideas and mm. we can just put them to life tomorrow it's not like we have um, at some organizations, yes, it's a great idea, let's do it in seven years. We can, we can do it in, in, in seven hours, and that's how we operate. And uh, we always come up with those ideas. So even when we played European Challenge Cup two years ago, we were struggling with venue, we were struggling with broadcast uh, equipment in, in London for volleyball. So we've asked Volleyball Confederation to allow us to play in Poland, a home match. I think it's that why not mentality that really drew me. You know, I've worked in sport, in big enterprises, whether it's Sport Radar or the ATP. But the nimbleness with which Polonia can and does act with the kind of why not attitude 
is one of the things that it's really inspiring. It's really engaging. You just feel like you can come up with ideas. And as, as Bartek says, you know, in a blink of an eye, we're rolling it out. We're trying it out. And, and the other thing that Polonia characterizes Polonia is similar to that is don't wait for don't wait for anyone else. Don't yeah. wait for the Federation to make things happen. Don't wait for the CEV or FIVB to rubber stamp things. Don't wait for, you know, a sponsor to step in before trying something. You know, that attitude of let's just be the pioneers and let's just try things is refreshing, I think, in the in the as the sports business gets more and more professional and business like and you know, you get more management consultants weaved into the fabric of these organizations everything gets kind of risk averse and slower. And I th that's one thing I find really exciting about working on the IBB Polonia project. Yeah. We are not afraid to make mistakes. And uh, as Alex is saying, you know, we, we have to be creative how we get into the media. Yeah. Because if we play volleyball and we win all the matches, no one is interested. Yeah. And if we keep doing this, that will mean that means we are volleyball 1.0 because that's what many clubs in Europe do. And unfortunately, they are not profit-making organizations. And we have to be very blunt about it. We want to generate profit. We want to be a profitable events mm. organizer. Volleyball is just an excuse for yeah. people to come in. Yeah. And with some of the things that haven't worked, is it a case of um, there are some ideas that just your development and the scale of the idea don't match up yet. Is, is there anything like that where you kind of, you know, you've talked about Alex applying things that you've seen elsewhere that you're not necessarily reinventing the wheel. You're just trying to bring it to the level that you're operating at, and you know, how does it work and how does it connect with the communities that you're trying to connect with and, and so on. Are there things that are just overly ambitious at this point? We operate at the level of three hundred thousand a season right now, so that's not huge yeah. i say it's it's probably one one good salary for for a nice you know ceo <laughs> somewhere that's what i'm aspiring to to get very soon but uh yeah so the obstacles would be the cost and yeah. uh but we we don't stop thinking about those things that's we're just trying to modify them so so they suit us and uh yeah and that's another advantage of, of volleyball you know players who are very good are paid maybe one million a year Pla mm -hmm. majority of players would be on I would say forty to 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 eighty thousand pounds a year. Mm. So that's it. You know, we can create a nice environment for players, put on great events, and 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 still, you know, don't have this need for you know hundred million budget. Yeah. And uh, we play Champions League. To play Champions League when you are in Italian league or in the Polish league, you need five million budget. We are doing this on three hundred thousand. So we know we can achieve eighty percent of their efforts or effect with 20% spend and that's our aim we're trying to be very creative how we spend very frugal with money yeah i think you know we, we the it is a, it is a challenge but um i think you know we any sport or any entity that wants to really disrupt its environment has to take risk and you know the big credit to ibb um, builders merchants because they they do put the money they put the capital up front and they go you know let's hope we can get the money back uh, it's not conditional. Maybe it is kind of informally, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, <laughs> but you know, Babtech is under pressure as CEO. He gets the phone calls and asks how the how the <laughs> how the outgoings are going and how the ticket sales are going and whether they're it's all heading in the right direction. But you know, the 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 guy behind it, Yatsek, he you know he's invested in this five years ago. He sees the opportunity. This is a sport that's undernourished. It's London. London is is the you know, when you listen to the FIVB and you listen to the CV, it's their holy grail. The, all these the big cities you would expect in Europe to have big teams, they do have big teams, but London doesn't. Now IBB Bologna is changing that. Yeah, and I think it's very important also to say that sports is one of the markets yet to be disrupted. Uh, it, it, you know, in, in the, on, on the sports level, you know, if 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 a, if a brand or, or 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 product wants to reach many clients, they think, okay, we have to spend billions with uh, with Barcelona or, or Tottenham not necessarily you know you can make big uh, changes in, in, in volleyball and also that would make big returns for your brand mm. if you invest hundred thousand two hundred thousand once we have a budget of six hundred seven hundred thousand we are moving full-time abroad because it's just too expensive for us to live in London but we will just you know camp our players somewhere we don't know where yet 
you know, give them 12 trainings a week, pay them, you know, small salaries and, and then just fly them to London for home matches. That's the idea. And, yeah. and, and with this setup, we can go to final four Champions League for, for a budget of, you know, a couple of, let's say, one million pounds. Mm. And I think if a brand hops on board and understands the potential, you know, they'll be winners because it's like with every startup, you invest early, you get the best returns. And that and that's the next stage. That's not like five stages in the future that we need to go through to get to. That is literally like the next stage of our revolution. We need a little bit more of that turnover to facilitate that move. But that move will then facilitate a real seismic shift in what the club is capable of doing, the visibility it will achieve, and the impact it will have on volleyball in this country. So it's a, that's why, again, like I said, this is why I got excited. This is the opportunities there. Yeah, I've got a bias. I've got a kind of a <laughs> nostalgia link to the club, which just helps. Um, but that's why I'm helping. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm really glad that, you know, Sports Pro have come and speak to us. Because one of the things that I also feel is, when we talk in the sports business, we talk a lot about whether it's at conferences or in magazines. You know, here's the here's Juventus's story about how they built this stadium. Here's Barcelona's story about how they did this multi-billion partnership with Twitter or whatever it is, which is great. It's aspirational. People read it and go, "This is you know, this is the cutting edge of sport business." But actually, the vast majority of franchises and rights owners they look at that and go, well, "That's great, but I can't I can't quite." do a multi-billion partnership with Facebook or TikTok. So mm. what can I do and what can I learn? And so I really appreciate that you guys are talking to us because I think there is a real opportunity for a swathe of rights holders, whether it's a handball club in Denmark or a, you know, a netball club in England or a basketball club in Croatia to learn from actually a different tier of creativity, a different tier where, where people are still trying to aspire. People are still yeah. breaking out of their their environment as you as you said at the opening but they can but they can learn actually tangible lessons well we should try that in our league we've no one's done that oh they can still go and hear what Juventus are doing or what 49ers are doing but I think you know there are lessons to be learned lower down the ladder as well in terms yeah. of creativity and things yeah. like that so obviously the the game at the Copper Box this is a bit of a step change in terms of in terms of the kind of events that you've put on what how are you how are you pitching this game because it's Obviously, it's it's you know you, you, we were talking about it being we're talking about Polonia thinking like an events business. So, what kind of an event is this, and what kind of an audience are you looking for from Londoners, from people in in the city who who might think about going to this game? So, this is the highest level of club volleyball tournament in the world in London at the Olympic venue. That's Copper Box Arena in the Olympic Park, so it's a premium venue. So it's a premium event at the premium venue with the premium and uh, entertainment and, and show available. And uh, that's what we are aiming it at, at people who are hungry of you know new things that are properly put on. We are engaging a lot of contractors to, to put the show on, a lot of contractors that worked at, at major events in the past. So we are really putting a world-class show on 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 and uh, the the audience will be people who understand volleyball but we know there is a limited number of those uh but you know they will come and they will support us which is great you know we have a lot of support from other volleyball clubs yes please carry on how can we do that as well and we share this knowledge all the time so that would be our you know the easiest market but then we also want to attract new people we want them to be the first contact they have with volleyball it's it's at the, it, at, at the olympic park at the, at the champions league and also you know we do things with families the, the the under 12 kids ticket is only one pound so we want to grow a new generation of people who understand uh, what volleyball events are mm. yeah i think as Bartek said there is there's the low-hanging fruit which is the volleyball fans polish volleyball fans multicultural volleyball fans, English volleyball fans, existing volleyball fans. Those are the guys that are all in our databases already. We we can use Volleyball England to help get that message out. For us, what we wanted, we, we were aware that, as, as Barry said, A, we've got a premium volleyball event. So it's a premium sporting contest. People who love seeing premium, you know, people who go to the NFL, they might not be NFL in, in Tottenham mm. last week or this week. They might not be big NFL fans, but they want to see a premium event at a premium sport being played on their doorstep. That's what we're offering. It's a different sport. It's not your everyday sport, but for one t for one night a year, or if we qualify further, maybe a few nights a year, 
you'll get the opportunity to see a volleyball that you cannot see in this country any other way with any other team. So that's the, the sport angle. Then we've got the completely different segment of the audience, which are just people who just want new experiences, the one-day eventers, who they'll look into their Time Out magazine and they'll go, I want to go and see that Hungarian black and white film festival because I've never done it. It sounds a bit different, something to talk about over the weekend, something to enrich my, you know, this is the whole point why I live in London, is to mm. experience the plethora of things on op offer. So I did that last night, but tomorrow is a Champions League game in volleyball. Never done it before. It's the, I know Champions League. Everyone knows what Champions League. Even if you don't know volleyball, you'll know it from football. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. So it's the same brand, in inverted commas. I'll go and see it. Cost me 30 quid. I'm not going to do it every night. And it's, and it's got bells and whistles with the DJ. And so, so Seven League have helped us to identify that segment of the market. How do we target them? How do we speak to them? What are the things that appeal to them in the in the graphics and the materials that we generate to really get them intrigued? Because it's 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 the intrigue that's gonna it's gonna get those guys. Yeah. But volleyball, it's not the intrigue. The volleyball fans, they want premium volleyball. They're not intrigue. It doesn't drag them in. Those guys need intrigue or curiosity. Like I've never done that before. I might as well. This is going to be a family event. It's midweek, but it's after school and work finishes. It's half done. It's half term, so basically no one's got an excuse to miss it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the aim for us is to progress further and we are in round one qualification. If we manage to get to round four, we will have volleyball powerhouses coming to London. So of course then tickets will fly off the shelves, but we just need to get there and uh, make sure we don't, you know, bankrupt on the way there. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do you hope to learn from this experience this season? Where, where do, where is this going to take you? Obviously, you've talked about some of your longer-term ambitions, but, but what do you hope to get out of this? Well, me personally, it's, it's an amazing journey. I had nothing to do with sports business five years ago. It's, it's an amazing journey for me personally. A lot of you know, ex great experiences, meeting great people, spending time and building something that's, that's meaningful. As a club, uh, we prove ourselves that things that started as a joke Five years ago, let's play Champions League. Yeah, of course. Okay, bring the pump. We have to pump the balls. That was the <laughs> that was the full dialogue. Now we play Champions League, so we 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 will prove ourselves that we can go further and further. And eventually, we we hope to have more commercial partners coming on board as well. We want to have media interest from from British media. That that's one of the big aims where we do that mm. because. We we, we, we we are aware that media won't show the match because it's a match. They have to have some, some further angle. So, and also the next step, we want to give uh, young British players something to aspire to. So th these are all the things that we want to take out in addition to half a million pounds in profit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we'll leave it there, guys. Thanks very much for your time and uh, best of luck at the Copper Box. Thanks again for your interest. Thank you. Okay, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thanks again to Alex and to Bartek. Thank you to Sam Karp. Thank you, Sam. And to Stephen Impey. Thank you very much. Um, do be sure, as ever, to like and share our stuff on social, uh, to subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling generous, to leave us a nice review on iTunes or your preferred podcast channel. We will be back with you next week. Bye-bye.